The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to the Ellis Martin Report. During this broadcast, you will learn of potential investment opportunities involving publicly traded companies. These companies have paid us for exposure on this program. We ask that before you consider any possible investment choice, do your own research. You can begin the research process by visiting our website, ellismartinreport.com. Here's the host of the Ellis Martin Report, Ellis Martin. Today on the program, I'll speak with renowned Yukon Gold prospector Sean Ryan about his path from a penniless mushroom farmer to a wealthy gold prospector and his position as a member of the advisory board for sponsor Stakeholder Gold, trading on the TSX Venture as SRC and in the U.S. as SKHRF. It's quite a compelling story. Dr. Brad Thompson of Oncolytics Biotech returns to the show amid the latest news for the company regarding clinical trials for an ovarian cancer study. Oncolytics trades as ONC on the TSX and ONCYF in the U.S. And I'll speak with Giannis Sitos of Gold Source Resources, trading as GXS on the TSX Venture and GXSFF in the U.S., Gold Source is pouring gold in Guyana. Let's begin the program. Join me for a conversation with Dr. Brad Thompson, CEO and President of Oncolytics Biotech Incorporated, trading as ONCYF in the U.S. and as ONC on the TSX. Oncolytics Biotech is a biotechnology company focused on the development of oncolytic viruses as potential therapeutics for use in a broad range of cancers. The company is conducting clinical studies using Reolice and its proprietary formulation of the human Reovirus and some of the most prevalent forms of the disease, including lung, colorectal, and pancreatic cancers. Brad, welcome back to the program. Oh, thank you very much. You've been on the road quite a bit. I hope your voyages have been productive and useful. Oh, they have. Part of being in a company that treats disease that focuses on a worldwide issue is worldwide travel. And we've conducted clinical trials in 14 different countries now, and most of those are in Europe. So we spend a fair amount of time going over to Europe and dealing with each different country and different clinical trials. So it's it's exciting though. I mean, this is the best possible time to be associated with a program like this. So it's not hard getting up in the morning at all to come and bounce into work and, and do these things. And if works over in Europe that week, well, that's fine. Well, basically, you're saving lives, really. And speaking of which, ovarian cancer, you had a news release on March 21st, and I believe a random phase two study was completed, and there were some results. And and let's discuss this particular disease today that afflicts so many women around the world. Ovarian cancer is the lesser known of the major women-specific cancers that people think of. I mean, breast cancer is the one that always comes to mind first, and deservedly so. I mean, it's a very serious disease and affects far, far too many women. But ovarian cancer kills, unfortunately as many women as breast cancer does. And it's a very, very, very important disease. And until recently has actually been not focused on very much. And right now the industry is focusing a great deal of attention on ovarian cancer. And there's numerous studies ongoing, which is a change from just a few years ago. And most interesting, of of course, to us in the area is that there's a a much greater focus on, on the immune effects, which I've talked about before, of the immune system on ovarian cancer. And really some, I think, serious changes in the standard of care of ovarian cancer are about to happen because of that, and that's all good. In our case, we've been looking at uh, ovarian cancer in combination with the former 
and current standard of care in some cases, which is a, a taxane-based regime. And so we were looking at taxanes in the control arm plus real lysin in the test arm. And we're really just starting to get all the data out of that study. And the investigator reported it at a major meeting in California. And one of the, I think, most interesting elements out of that report was they still haven't done the immune elements of it yet. But on one of the major antigens that people follow to detect the progress of ovarian cancer, which is CA125, and all an antigen is is, is something that's shed usually into the bloodstream or sometimes into the urine and you can just measure with a blood test. For men, they're used to hearing things like PSA for prostate cancer. Well, there's equivalent ones for other cancers as well. In ovarian cancer, it's CA125. Now, not all women express CA125, so it's not a universal antigen, but for the women who actually have high levels of CA125, it's a very commonly used detection. And so they don't have to get scanned and things like that. You can just actually measure it in their blood. You do a simple blood test and you test it and you can follow the progress of their cancer. But in that case, we saw this very important shift in response so instead of having just stable disease, patients would have partial responses. And instead of just having partial responses, if they had that, they would go to a complete responses. And if they had progressive disease, some of them go on to have just stable disease, which is an improvement. So you saw this shift in response based on the addition of real lysin. And that's really quite significant, I mean, because that measures total tumor burden. And so we were very excited with the results. I mean, it gave us a very strong indication that real lysin has a potential to be used in ovarian cancers. Now, we're completing the immune analysis now with the investigator. And and that'll tell us the really top-notch stuff with respect to overall survival. And we think we could actually tweak the immune system to work with real lysin as well. So very exciting results for us and very important for us to actually fit in with this new wave of things, which is immune therapy. With immune therapy, is it a chicken and egg scenario? If you have a weakened immune system, are you more susceptible to cancer? Or when you get cancer, does it weaken your immune system? It's usually the former. Aging degrades your immune system. There's no other way of saying it. I mean, uh, your immune system at age 40 is probably half of what it was when you were 20. And when you're 60, it's half again. And when you're 80, it's half again. So, you know, by the time you're 80 years old, you, you know, have an eighth of the immune system you did when you were a healthy, young, vigorous 20-year-old. That's why we see cancers in patients that are older with increasing frequency. I mean, normally your immune system takes care of cancer. I mean, most people don't realize this and probably don't want to think about this, but They've had cancer many, many, many times by the time they're an adult, but they never had the disease cancer. And so cancers will pop up, your immune system will go, hey, that doesn't belong here and deal with it just like it would with an infection or a parasite. And that's the normal case. And as you get older, your immune system gets older too, and you start not seeing the cancer, the immune system doesn't, and all of a sudden you start getting higher frequencies of cancer. And uh, you quite often hear the expression in our industry, cancer is a disease of aging, and it is. I mean, there are exceptions. I mean, children get some very serious cancers, and adults get specific serious cancers before they get older. But a lot of them are environmentally induced. Smoking, you know, is the prime environmental irritant for cancers. Yeah, I mean, as you get older, your immune system drops, and, you know, you get cancer. And this kind of new wave in oncology is to take what is there in the immune system and give it a helping hand. And so you either enhance the immune system or you wipe its eyeglasses off so it can see again, metaphorically, so that you use the same immune system that's there, but you target it. And real lysin works with both of those modes of action quite well. So our immune program, our clinical program going forward is very much uh, immune focused. And, uh, you know, we have a number of clinical studies right now looking at both elements, enhancing the immune system and wiping the immune system's eyeglasses off. What are some of the other studies we can look forward to potentially seeing information from during the coming months? 
Well, we have uh, two groups of studies. One is our existing phase two randomized program. And uh, I would think people can expect to hear more about pancreatic cancer study that was run in the United States by the NCI, more data coming out of our Canadian randomized studies. Uh, there's a non-small cell lung study, breast cancer study, a prostate cancer study, and a colorectal cancer study. And all but the breast study should report at least preliminary data in 2016. Uh, the breast study will be 2017. It was a little later finishing enrollment. In parallel with that, we're running our first sets of immune studies, pure immune studies. And so we're doing a children's pediatric glioma or glioblastoma study, which is serious form of brain cancer um, that we should be reporting on data this year by just enhancing the immune system to work with reolysin. And we're also doing our first uh, what people call checkpoint inhibitors, which is the wiping the glasses off so the immune system can see the tumor better type of drug. And that's being conducted down in Texas with pancreatic cancer patients and combining reolysin and one of these new checkpoint inhibitors. And we should be reporting on data in the second half of this year on that as well. So we have all sorts of things that we're going to be talking about in 2016, which is pretty exciting, honestly, you know, and further defining how real lysin works. I mean, we've clearly demonstrated real lysin reduces tumor burden if you have the right genetics in the tumor. And now we're in the midst of extending that and trying to show that it also has that effect and overall survival under the right conditions. So it's a very exciting time for us. There's certain genetics, and you know a thousand percent more about it than I do, but there's certain genetics that carry down in families, many cases where sisters are afflicted with a similar disease and their parents have died of certain cancers. Is it at the point yet where you can spot these genetic markers and begin to attack a potential cancer? Or is that not within the realm of what you're looking at in some of these studies? I think that really is the case. And sometimes the mutations, on the genetics are are only in the tumor. And so you can't really see it if you're just looking at a otherwise normal healthy patient. And sometimes there's an inherent flaw in the person's genetic basis that they have at birth that will lead them to have cancer sometime in the future. And that's where a lot of the attention is being driven with people, especially with some of the mutations that lead to breast cancer. But there are familial, what we call familial genetics that are predictive of a high probability of cancer. So there's really two different types that you have to look for. One is actual changes that are not unique to the person, but unique to the tumor. And those are kind of hard to follow earlier on. And then there's the ones that potentially lead to cancer. Personal example that I've got a, a genetic flaw that leads me to have different skin cancers. And, you know, I lost the genetic lottery at birth on that one. But, you know, other people, it's, you know, how much sun exposure they have that cause mutations and things like that. And then I think there's a number of cancers uh, with, with real license that we are beginning to believe we should be able to do the predictive on the general population, just kind of test people for this, 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 and this, and say with a high probability that you're going to get a certain type of cancer sometime in your life. On this program, we've been shining a light on the company for just over a year now, and we are still attempting to bring a larger audience to your company for two reasons, to provide hope is the main reason. And, and secondly, you are a potential investment opportunity. And let's cover that for just a few minutes. Why should listeners new to this program consider Oncolytics Biotech as a potential investment opportunity? Companies in biotech, the valuations are driven by information and data. People will talk about what milestones you're going to achieve and those sorts of things. And that's all prior to product approval. You know, Once a product is approved in a biotech company, then you can switch over to this more normal measure of things, which is looking at profits and doing multiples on profits and then you come up with a stock price and there's actually a very narrow band of valuations in biotech companies based on that. But 
before that, you're looking at milestones. And so OnClick is an investment vehicle. You look at it and you have to say, what are the milestones coming up? The milestones for us are five randomized phase two clinical trial data points within the next uh, 12 calendar months and initial readouts on the first two immune therapy studies. So those are the milestones for the next calendar year. And then they're very important. And they should, one way or the other, lead to valuation changes in the company. Well, Brad, it's always a pleasure to speak with you. I look forward to chatting with you again in the very near future. Thanks so much for joining us today in the program. It's always a pleasure. Well, thank you very much. I'll take care. I've been speaking with Dr. Brad Thompson, CEO and president of Oncolytics Biotech Incorporated, trading as ONCYF in the U.S. and as ONC on the TSX. Listen to the segment again on our website or download the entire Ellis Martin Report on iTunes. Remember, all of the companies you're hearing about today have paid us for the opportunity to be reviewed by you on this program. Do your own research before investing in anything mentioned here. Start by visiting our website, ellismartinreport.com. I'm Ellis Martin. Join me now for a conversation with renowned Canadian Yukon gold prospector, Sean Ryan. Sean is on the advisory committee for Stakeholder Gold Corporation, trading on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol SRC.B and in the U.S. as SKHRF. Stakeholder Gold is conducting exploration on its 100% owned Ballarat Gold property, located 120 kilometers southeast of Dawson City in the White Gold District of the Yukon. Sean's mushroom farmer to wildly successful and unique gold prospector story has been featured on CBS News' 60 Minutes as well as ABC News and several other news forums. Sean, welcome to the program. Thanks. Your story is very unique. You literally went from being a mushroom farmer in the Canadian Yukon to almost single-handedly delivering some of the most prolific gold finds in that huge Klondike district with your own claims encompassing an area about the size of the state of Delaware, thus breathing new life into the Yukon and Dawson City, which had been almost a ghost town for about 130 years or so. Let's talk about your path down the Golden Brick Road. I started my career in, ex- I used to like to be a trapper and hunter. And then we kind of went into uh, in the Timmins camp in Northern Ontario. It's a big mining community. We ended up working in exploration for the next seven or eight years. And then once the super flow through crashed in 89, everybody was out of work. I ended up moving up to the Yukon to go actually trap it and to buy a trap line. But we ended up falling in love with picking mushrooms, wild mushrooms for a living. It was pretty well the same thing as hunting and you were looking for something. And so we ended up doing that for about eight years. While we were doing that, uh, after eight years, I met up with my wife and we had started a family. Then we couldn't be the migrant type workforce up and down the West Coast. So we ended up, because we were based out of Dawson, and that's where we started picking mushrooms. We said, okay, well, let's put on a prospector's hat. We had up to between 13 and 20 million ounces of placer gold, and some of these creeks like Bonanza produced 6 million ounces on its own. So I kind of looked at that and I said, well, if this was the Timmins camp, you'd have two or three head frames on that creek. And everybody would be drilling in between the head frames. Because you could see the head frame, they had produced all this gold. But in the Klondike, like the late 90s, people were saying, no, no, there is no more gold left. It's all eroded. I'm going, you're kidding me. Like, who the hell started this bad rumor? Like, if this was Timmins, you'd have three head frames and you'd drill in the middle, even if most of the gold was gone. So that's when I said, no, no, there's got to be something more to this. The research as a junior mining company that comes up to look at the Klondike or, or anywhere in the Yukon, they usually look at one little claim block, one little piece. They look on that little piece and then they move on if there's nothing there. 
And they usually only have a two-year shelf life as a junior. If you don't find nothing on the first year, shareholders will give you one more year at the kick at the can. And if you don't find nothing then, usually you got to move on. We turned around and I told my lovely wife that I think we could crack this nut. If we could actually find a morel that grows in the Yukon that's dormant for 300 years and I could predict exactly where it's going to grow, within the week it's going to grow, we could certainly have probably some fairly good luck looking for gold. But when we started that, it was 96, and early in 97, the Briex scandal came in, and we were in an old tin shack, <laughs> no running water, electricity, and we pretty well got locked in there for the next six years because you couldn't sell anything worth nothing. But it gave us the time to start this R&D research, and we systematically said, okay, it's not going to be overnight success because you couldn't sell anything at that point, but it actually gave us the opportunity to systematically start walking ridge by ridge with the idea that even finding nothing was as valuable as finding something. Because when you found something, if you looked at a lot of nothing, you understood what something looked like. And so it was kind of an interesting concept. It could take a while to find these things. So my wife basically backed me up and because she was the one living in the shack with me. And uh, yeah, then it was a systematic hunt over the last, well, now it's been 20 years, but it led to the discoveries of these big deposits. And we ended up soil sampling because statistically, a prospector in the olden days would go out with a rock hammer and basically look for rocks. But if you think about it, the Klondike District, it hasn't been glaciated, so the glaciers didn't move through there. Really, there's about 2% to 3% outcrop exposure. So if your primary method of madness as a prospector is to go out with a rock pick and bang on a rock, and statistically, there's only one in 10,000 discovery, like showings that are potentially turned into a deposit, What's the probability that this one in 10,000 is going to be in this 2% outcrop exposure? I said, holy crow, we got to come up with a different method here because we're going to starve here. So we ended up turning this into soil geochemistry was the actual method of madness. So we ended up putting the rock hammers away and just going out with soil augers and mapping out the surficial, basically taking deeper soils because the soils, because it wasn't glaciated, the actual mineralization percolated its way down, just like the plaster gold did in the creeks. When you took a soil from two and a half feet down, your response that you would see nothing in the top six inches to eight inches, you'd see the deposit if there was a deposit there. And just to give you an idea, some of these deposits are as narrow as 37 meters. So it's just a little over a couple of 120 feet like wide. Some of these were the tip of the iceberg. So you had to be very meticulous with the soil sampling. So you're putting away the big tools and you were taking soil samples. How have you been identifying the resource and the size of them? The simplicity of it is, someone once told me, Sean, the days of you coming out of the bush with a rock, with visible gold, and getting the companies all excited are pretty well over with. You have to bring us a system. And we'll worry about the showings after we find the system. And now mineralized systems are like haystacks on the horizon. So you just had to find the haystack and then you'll find the needle in it. So what we've done now with soil geochemistry by taking deeper soils, don't take two or 300 soils, take thousands of soils. So we actually could map out these mineralized systems. And some of these systems, like the coffee, it's like over 10 miles long. And so all of a sudden, these are big systems with fluids that are moving through. So it ends up being like the simplicity of it is, is that with the soils up here in the Yukon, they actually were able to, because of the geochemistry of it, like around 2001, the GPS system became available. They took off the, the 100 meter plus or minus 100 meters and I get down to five meters. So that ended up helping us out to pin down where you took your sample in the bush. And then the next thing that happened, there was a whole new breakthrough with assaying that instead of doing, let's say, three or four elements, 
like gold, arsenic, antimony, you get 36 elements for actually a cheaper price than it was for the three, you know, a few years previous. The assays, ICPMS they call it, came up available. They were cheaper, more elements. Then you had your GPS that worked with it, that you could tie your points to it. And then the third thing that actually helped us out was the new GIS programs. I used to have to hand plot. And if I hand plotted 300 soils in a day, I could only do three elements, like gold, arsenic, antimony, or lead, zinc, copper. But now with the new modern system, I could plot on the computer. You could plot 10,000 soils in a matter of minutes. And you could do all 37 elements or 36 elements. Like in every minute, you could see another one and another one. So then you actually seen the pattern. So that system, for me as a prospector, basically ended up, I could now see these mineralized systems. And then what I would end up doing was optioning them off to junior mining companies. And then they would put the big dollars into diamond drilling them. It was the setup time. Some of these things would take me like five or six years to map these systems out. And then I would sell it to the junior or option it out. So you had a plan. You were quietly doing this for years and years, knowing full well that the market would turn around, knowing that you could easily fly to Vancouver or Toronto and talk to these juniors and say, here, look what I've got. Are you guys interested or shall I talk to someone else who might be interested? Is that pretty much how it went? Our junior mining industry, like it used to be the majors and the majors would go out and have their own exploration team and work an area for four or five years. And that's what I used to do in the Timmins camp with the majors. But when the turn came around after the super flow through crashed and, and then especially when the Briex hit, all the majors dropped their exploration companies and they were hoping the juniors was going to pick it. But the juniors, we realized, the market never gave them the time to actually think about it. They couldn't go to the market and say, can you give us two million bucks and we're going to come back in three years with a drill target. They'd say, forget it. We're not going to give you any money. They'd rather give it money to someone that said, look, it, I think I got a drill target. It's okay, but we're going to drill it this year. So they would give them two million bucks and the probability of them hitting was nil next to none. So that's where I, my little niche was. Forget it. I'll do the high risk. R&D work ahead of time and I'll eat my junk like because this dead stuff I you know I don't even talk to people about but I'll bring up my best cards forward with these mineralized systems so when I showed up in Vancouver or Vancouver Toronto with my data package they would look at this and they go holy crap okay like you pretty well got it mapped out enough that the high risk was out of it it's still a high risk but we've de-risked it quite a bit. Then I would pick up an option deal off the deal. So So the de-risking was done in advance, essentially. All these mining companies had to do was look at your data and strike a deal with you. That's right. What I ended up doing, different from pretty well everybody else, is I set up an A-team. Like I call them the elite team. They were the commandos. They were the best. Like we trained our guys because eventually I took over close to a half a million soils. One year we did the largest geochemical sampling program on the planet and we took 170,000 soils. Like that was literally over 5,000 miles of traverses through the bush. It was 9,000 kilometers on spacings of 50 meters. We were taking a soil and documenting it with pictures and the whole nine yards. But we created an, an elite team. So if you basically optioned one of my grounds, then you got access to the elite team to work your ground because I'm trying to get the max dollar. If you're going to put 300,000 bucks under my property, I want to make sure I squeeze every dollar <laughs> that's done right on my ground in case you give it back to me. And so this is why this detail and training was the key because literally one of our deposits, like the white gold, it was found with two soil samples. The coffee on the latte 
That's one soil sample. There's over a million and a half ounces underneath that one soil. So even though you're taking thousands, if you don't pay attention to every one, you might miss that one. That's how narrow these things are. The interesting point that we eventually got going here was because we were gathering the data, and I had up to 20 different juniors sometimes, they had all my projects. That junior seen his data and the other junior seen their data, and they could be 20, 30 miles apart. But I got to see the master database at the end of the year because they owed it to me because it was my property. So I, I actually eventually got to see the master piece of the database. Hence, I could help that junior 20 miles away. If I seen something on a, someone else's property, I couldn't show them the data, but I'd say, based on what I see over there, you guys should be looking over there. So we got some continuity. And that was the cool part about it is we did it with the same assay lab, the same assay technique. Everything was done the same. Like as a geochemical database, it was like one of the best people that have ever seen and still have ever seen. Like, you know, it's a consistency and all this kind of stuff that you had to think about way ahead of time before this thing all took off. It seems like the Yukon and your strategy are unique and not found anywhere else in the world. What we're dealing with is near surface stuff in Turkey. This would work in Turkey. And this will work in, like, you know, other spots in South America. So the same concept, there's a lot of places on the planet this will work. The real big thing that you had to think about was the whole exploration strategy. People who have any experience in the game. What we used to do as an exploration, a lot of companies would do is they would actually pay the soil samplers, the cheapest on the actual crew. And to think about this... And sometimes they would be cranky with them and not treat them right. And so when your soil guy is out there in the day and he's pissed off at his boss or he's not happy, well, he's putting crap in the bag. And to think about that the mining companies, they would actually spend millions of dollars a year later based on this guy that they pissed off in the bush and were paying him the cheapest on the staff, like it didn't make any sense. So this is where the whole operation philosophy was kind of messed up a little bit here. So that's why I'm saying like across the planet, this was the norm. So now when my point is, is there's a lot of good spots along the planet to do this, but you had to start with treat your employee right, give them some good training and collect high quality data because it's still a low probability game that we're up to. And the only way to just increase your odds, if you're at the horse race, the guy who just wins by one head, he's got the pie. So that's why we have to just increase our odds. And the only way to increase our odds with mother nature is by collecting better quality data then it gives you a little bit better chance. Will we see another gold rush in the Yukon, the likes of which we've never seen before? How has technology improved the hunt for gold? And specifically, Sean, how has your technique improved through the use of technology? The last rush, to give you an idea of the size of the rush, like in 2002 in the Yukon, we had a total of 7 million in exploration. I think there was 3,000 claim state. That was quite a bit. This year, there's probably only been a couple hundred. To give you an idea, by 2010 and 11. We had $500 million in exploration and over 200,000 claims. So what happened was there was lots of good data gathered. Then a lot of people basically ran out of money in the market tank. So there's still a lot of good targets out there that never got followed up on. Well, we've had a problem, and that's been just in our exploration and the nature of the remoteness up here in the Yukon. We're paying up to $500 a meter all-in exploration for drilling, for diamond drilling. So that's the cook and the helicopter and the drill and core splitters and pad builders. So it gets quite expensive. My job to go in and basically the recon and map out these systems and get it flushed out was fairly, I could do it fairly cheaply. Follow up was quite expensive. Once the 2012, once it started petering out, we realized, okay, things are crashing here. We got to figure out a different way to follow up these targets. 
So we went back to the drawing board, and I was lucky I made some good coin on the way up because we found like the white deposit was on my ground and the coffee was on my ground. It was our techniques that led to the discoveries. So we were getting good success. What we ended up doing was when everybody retreated and took off, we went into research and development mode, and we said, okay, let's debug the whole system, and let's come up with a better way, a better mousetrap. We ended up coming up with this new technique that based with ground truth exploration, and that's basically used to be my old foremans that are running that, and my wife is still part of that company, and I'm kind of on the side. I'm just, I'm still the prospector type, but I'm the R&D guy in the background. So what we ended up doing was coming up with new techniques to follow up these soil anomalies. One of the techniques was we brought in the first drones into the country. So we drone our grounds. The military could get that kind of intelligence, so could we. So we said, let's get some better resolution data from the ground so we create nice 3D models. And then we ended up doing over our soil anomalies that are quite wide sometimes. We ended up applying called DC resistivity, which is a form of IP survey that the industry was used to doing, but they were doing them on 25-meter electrode spaces up to 50 meters, and they were looking deep down. What I ended up saying is, why are we looking down so deep? The resolution is quite coarse. Why don't we go, instead of looking deep, looking up, why don't we go top down? Let's look from top, looking down. So we know we have the soil anomaly on surface. Well, we went to the environment world and picked up these new instruments that was DC resistivity, but the electrode spacings are five meters. Like it's a new system that I could put 84 electrodes back to back, cover basically 450 meter space of area, and power this thing up and read it. And what it does is maps the cracks in the ground underneath the soil anomaly. 90% of the gold deposits that we have up here in Yukon, they're structurally controlled. So I'm going to find the crack. Sometimes you'll find two or three good-sized cracks. And I mean, the cracks could be up to like 20 meters wide. So we don't know, is that the crack that's producing this gold anomaly on surface? But it looks close. So then that was phase one. And then we brought in another technique. Instead of trenching, we used to bring these little mini holes. And the little mini holes excavators worked really well. Problem was, they were slow. You actually had two guys excavating, and then you had to have a couple of samplers come in, and then you had to go and reclimate it. So there was a cost of all this. So we ended up putting in these hammer drills on these special rubber tracks that we brought in. Remote control run. Guy walks behind it, and then the thing still has to flip it up and, and drill, or a hammer drill down. But it's just a little hole. And what we ended up doing was we tied this in with an XRF that could actually give you a very close idea of the mineral content right now with this laser beam zapper. We actually had real-time data. By doing that way and not using the whole, we tripled our production, daily production, with no reclamation costs. And we got live feed data. So then the next thing that we brought in, okay, now we know which structure has the gold in it. Now the next question everybody's going to have is, how deep does it go? Okay. So the diamond drone is pretty expensive. So we went back to the drawing board. We designed a rotary air blast drill that was lightweight. And we put it on the same tracks as our hammer drill because the hammer drill had the path already cut ahead of us. Like it already trimmed the path out so we didn't have to recut it. So we could drop this rotary air blast drill. We called it the, the GT RAB. And we basically pound a 100-meter hole in a 10-hour shift. And bang. And we XRF it and we know the results. And that is basically 25 cents on a dollar compared to diamond drill. So now what used to take us two field seasons, like this is in 2011, take you two to three, like at least two field seasons, sometimes three, 500 to $700,000 in exploration. I could do it in two and a half to three weeks at any time of the year. There's all these gear that we worked before we could only work in the summer. Now I could work in the wintertime because I don't use water. So we could do it in two and a half weeks for roughly 100000 bucks. So it's 25 cents in the dollar now.
to go and actually answer those questions. Do you have gold at depth or not? So that's why I think we're going to make some discoveries because now we have a very inexpensive way that's cost-effective, environmentally friendly to go in under this ground truth method and go in and kick ass and get this data. Yeah, and we're all satellite linked up. So you as the customer, you get the, the XRF or like the inversions from the resistivity. That's done nightly. Used to take months. We're doing it every night. So you get it by 7 in the morning. When we drill or hammer drill or the rab drill, you get that data from the XRF that night on a histogram. It's like hunting at this point. So it's back to my hunting technique for mushrooms. What are you doing with drones? If we have a good soil anomaly, we just go in and we drone the ground and we create this cool 3D blueprint. Like it's up to two and a half to three inches resolution that you could see the whole working site. The first reason why we did it was just to actually get a better understanding of your work site, the 3D blueprint of the work site. But then it ended up being we could drape our data, our geophysics, and then we plotted our, our hammer drill holes. And then we started plotting the rab holes. You could plot all your data in there and create the coolest, basically, virtual reality world. What it did is it brought the geologist that could be a thousand miles away. When we talk about the project, because the guys are in the field, satellite linked up, and they're going, okay, this is what this looks like, this. And we're standing by this spruce tree. That geologist that's a thousand miles away is looking at this high-resolution drone imagery and sees the spruce tree and goes, holy crow, okay, I see exactly what you're talking about. And he gets a feel of the ground without actually even being there. No one has to get on an airplane then, saving a fair amount of travel expense and time. The way our industry is, there's a lot of well-educated experienced people, but they're all like approaching mid-50s to 60s to 65 plus. And there's only a few of those guys left. They can't be at every project. They can only be at one project at a time if they have to visit there and stand there and look at the stuff. So that's tying up their time. Now I could have a high-level guy sitting in Toronto or Vancouver or wherever. He could be looking at four to five projects going all at once at different parts of the world there. If we're all in the Yukon, it's like he's there because we're feeding him the data nightly. So we could take advantage of these high-level guys. And that's really what the ground truth method is, is how to gather unbiased scientific data and present it in a way that some high-level thinkers could actually work with it quickly. These are high-resolution uh, cameras in these drones, so actually they can throw them up on the big screen wherever they're at in the world. I give a presentation there, I gave one a roundup, and I show you pictures of what we do with it, like what we do with it. You don't know if you're looking at a photo, like you actually don't know is this real or is this not real this is the closest thing to beam me down scotty from star trek and you land right down on the ground and you look around and you don't know are you looking out the helicopter window or are you in the 3d model that's how good the drone imagery's got these days yeah it's kind of fun like in the last three years the drone imagery world has taken off like the post-processing has gone to a whole other level so this is what we do we do this drones to drills and we make these cool back-end videos with all the data packaged up and spinning around go looking underground and look at the they could take that because we can't forget about the marketing guys and they could take that to the market and go look at we need to raise two million bucks to diamond drill this now these guys have now snooped this up and they've got this kind of dialed in now we got to go in with the big bucks so that's kind of what this ground truth method is the drones to drills is we're the recon team we get in we're the rap attack we're ahead of the guys the navy seals and we're in there we're non-evasive Right now in Yukon, we don't even need permits because all of our gear is lightweight footprint, low ground pressure, under five feet wide. We got no reclamation costs behind us. They're all small camps. And then once we make a discovery, then you bring in the big, I call it the mop-up. That's where the big camps come in and then they do their magic, but our job is done. Let's do it cost-effective, environmentally friendly, and basically able to present the data in the back end. 
And so then everybody wins from the environmental world because we're not destroying the area looking because that's what I tell people. The probability that there's nothing there, even on a good soil anomaly, is 95%. The probability of me finding a soil anomaly is about 1% to 1.5%, like a good soil anomaly. If I do 100 kilometers of traverse and I get one kilometer, I'm happy. Usually it's I get 750 meters, so it's less than 1% success. I'm really happy still. But when you go and flush that less than 1% or 1% target, the probability that there's nothing worthwhile chasing is 95%. So this is why we're getting in there for cost-effective, very inexpensive methods in understanding these targets before you bring in the big projects. And this is our problem like that we've had in our industry before is you'd find a good little target and then you go in heavy-handed, like bring in the big tanks like in the war and you're kind of going, no, no, we got to figure this out with this big stuff here. So that's what we're kind of getting at. And then everybody goes away happy because environmentalists were not out there heavy-handedly setting up these big camps. We're in these little guys and cost-effect, the 5% of the 95% that does turn into a success, then it's worth to bring in the big military kind of operation, as I call it. You've been a forward thinker, which I'm sure helped you in accomplishing all the things that you've done. How did you wind up where you're at as far as technology is concerned? To me, it's studying the land. And like from being a hunter, like a trapper, you're studying how the foxes move. You want to trap them. So you have to study the trees. And and that's what ended up being mushroom picking. We were studying a, an organism that was dormant. We pick them behind forest fires here, but like nobody knew they even existed when I came up here. So I said, no, no, scientifically, they should exist. And lo and behold, you walk in and they were there. And then eventually, when you researched it more, you could actually figure out why they existed, when they were going to come up, the science behind it. To me, it's studying the land, and then hence, you get a reward. Oh, then you could predict when the mushroom is going to grow. Oh, you prepare before the mushroom grows. It's not even visible. And then all of a sudden, you've got all your dryers ready. Boom, it pops up in the middle of nowhere. You're there, and it's only there for a month, and you work like a nut bar. It's like trapping. You've got your all your bags of dried mushrooms, and you come out of the bush, and you feel like, okay, you've done something good. That was done by science. When I started looking for gold in Yukon, I said, I'm not even going to look for gold. Everybody vectors into the gold. Oh, we're looking for gold. We're looking for gold. No, there's other geochemical elements. Some gold deposits have copper, arsenic, antimony with it, or tungsten. If everything is equal, like our first deposit we found, it was a small skern. The gold was geochemistry was down in the bottom of the valley. The copper and the tungsten and the business was at the top end of the valley. So I said, if gold and all these elements are equal, well, then you got better chance up at the top end of the valley. But everybody stopped at the bottom of the valley to look for gold, and nobody found gold. Well, when I walked up to the top of the valley, literally we found the gold like within hours. That's when I realized, well, wait a minute. A lot of people are getting pulled around because, oh, they got gold in their brain. They're just going to look for the gold. So I said, okay, we're not going to look for gold. We're going to understand the land first, understand geochemistry, because in the Klondike, or it doesn't matter where you are, there could be two or three styles of gold deposits, and each of them are like different animals, so they have different hunting techniques. The only way you're going to break these kind of different beasts out is by understanding the geochemistry. Oh, that's basically with the skern style. Well, that'll be that spot over there, and that's how we're going to hunt that. Oh, this is structurally controlled. Okay, that's cracks. That has nothing to do with the type of rocks. Then you understand the techniques you're going to go hunting that gold deposit. I'm a prospector, but I dislike the old prospecting way. I won't go to the bush for two years. Like, we'll do our geochemistry our first year, recce. We'll locate some good targets. I'll send in the crew in another year, next year, do a bunch more detail, get the grid set up. And then at the end of the year two, maybe then I'll actually fly out to the property and have a look. But usually by then, if I walk out then, usually I, I, I find the rock with gold in it. 
within a couple of hours versus if you do it the old way. And this is our problem that we have as prospectors, as human beings, we get disappointed too quick. So if you go out and grab a rock and there's nothing in it, you're going, crap, okay, there's nothing in it. Like there's nothing around here. I don't even, like I say, we don't touch rocks at the beginning. We actually go for soils. And soils is like a hand grenade and a rock is like a bullet. It's got to be precise. The goal has got to be in that rock. But if I collect soils, they're like hand grenades. So I know anything within 100 feet to 200 feet radius. There's gold somewhere in there and some rock. Oh, that gives me hope. Versus running around grabbing rocks going, I got nothing for the last two weeks out of that valley. I'm leaving the valley. At least the soils gives you, okay, let's go back in. So then you kind of box the gold in, I call it. Then you do more grid work and you kind of corner it in. Okay, now you've got it boxed in. Okay, now let's go in for the kill shot. And you walk in on year two or three and you find it. But it's the patience. It's kind of like I tell people, it's like trying to drop the black ball in the pool game. If you know you're not going to do it on the first round and you understand that and you got a few shots at it, set up your ball, set up the shots, then go in for the kill shot for the black ball. Essentially, you're a trapper, a hunter, and a bit of a farmer. Yep, to me, you have to understand your prey, the land. And if the better you understand the land, the better your probabilities increase. But the other idea is that instead of me being scattered, running all across the planet, like some of these juniors, they run and chase steak and rushes. And that's, I had a cousin in the business, and he said, Sean, there's two ways of doing this. One, you could chase the steak and rush, or you could start it. <laughs> so back to the mushroom picking, you could have a good patch, and you could have 10 vehicles in that mushroom patch, and there's 20 different pickers in there. But if you're the guy in there the next morning, you're the Johnny on the spot early in the morning, first vehicle in there, probably going to get the next day there'll be one or two vehicles leaving going oh, okay there's already ah he's there beat us okay let's move on to the next one and you do that for a week eventually you're going to own that patch because everybody's got disappointed and you're the guy ahead of time and you're picking up all the cream on the crop early in the morning so they're getting disappointed and they're not coming back eventually like you control the patch and we call that controlling the patch well this is what we did with the yukon we're not leaving the yukon we started in dawson we're not going to leave Dawson. I don't care what happens. If there's diamonds in the Northwest Territory, we're going to hunt here. This is our hunting. We're going to get to know this like nobody knows this ground. So that's my job is to understand it. Yeah, and then eventually, boom, you know, and I use the analogy Sasquatch hunting for the Klondike. We've seen lots of, I call it Sasquatch tracks that Bigfoot because it was the placer goal, but nobody's ever seen the beast. Well, we know the beast has got to be here. So this is part of the thing of being a prospector. You actually have to believe in yourself a little bit, even though everybody's going, I don't know about this. You're going, look, it's got to be here. Let's focus in on a successful story such as Kamenek and how the stakeholder Ballarat project more specifically might be something close to it. We ended up finding the white gold saddle deposit. That was 2008. But you see that when we staked in 2002 or three. We had it a few years ahead. 2006, we ended up picking up the coffee claims, which was about 15 miles away from the white gold, the gold deposit. In between Bell is the stakeholder Ballarat project. So they're right in that same neck of the wood. 2008, they drilled the discovery hole into the white deposit. 2009, I actually optioned the coffee project to the Kamenak guys. And then we did the work on it in 2009, and then they drilled the discovery hole, the first hole in 2010. So that's what kind of lit the whole place on fire. And so pretty well all the claims got picked up. And so a little bit of the history of the stakeholders, Bellarat, I own 50% of that whole district. It was 50,000 claim state, and I own 25,000. So I said, like, go big or go home. Like, <laughs> believe in your theory and don't look back. So we basically tagged onto a pile of claims, option a bunch. But I was always trying to, to get the Bellarat project because I actually had the first, first discovery when the light bulb went on was on the border of the Bellarat project. There was a, a young geologist prospector that his family had mined placer gold 
in the 80s and 90s on, on the Ballarat Creek. So I was right on top of the mountain above Ballarat. There was uh, five placer creeks. There was Thistle, and there was Barker, and there was Kirkman. So it was kind of the apex, right on top of the mountain, five placer creeks in the middle of nowhere. Like, this is south of the Klondike Goldfields. And I'm walking on the road in between the two placer creeks, and we had just started our soil sampling techniques the year before. This in 2002, or 2003, we did some reckings, and we had really started the programs in 2002. So we were doing 2003, we did a program, and then, so we were following up in 2004 on the road where I had got a good soil. Lo and behold, there was a quartz vein, like on the road, sitting there that the cat had pushed over, going in between both creeks. You bang on a million rocks in your lifetime, and you only see visible gold every once in a while. So I call that, if you see visible gold, it's called a hole-in-one. The old days when you didn't have satellite phones and you had to call someone, that was the code word. I got a hole-in-one because everybody's listening <laughs> to the radio phones out there. Back and then, it was another kind of a shortwave radio. So the point was, there I found walking in between those two creeks on the road, bang, quartz name, there's visible gold. To this day, I still remember me standing up, looking around the whole countryside. It was totally empty. It was only that little claim block next to me that I couldn't get my hands on. So that's the stakeholder claim block to Bellarat. But there was nobody there in the whole country. I said, my God, this was Timmins. This would be just drilled to the crap for like, they would have drilled this thing out, like, you know, 30, 40 years ago. Hence the rest is history. But the Bellarat project was sitting there. They optioned to another company and they did some work, but we never actually worked the property. You know, everybody walked away. Acolder got their hands on that project. I looked at the data and I knew because I had some history on the headwaters of it. I look at this and then when I played with the data, I could actually see some high probability. There's something really going on. And what happened was the placer guy, uh, the prospector Geo, that he was working with his family or his parents mining the creek, they actually got an unusual population, a bunch of chunky nuggets in one area of the creek. You know, the creek is consistently producing placer. So, okay, that's a good story. It's coming from somewhere. When they were mining up the creek, they came across an area that produced some nice chunky placer gold right there on the side of it. He started banging around and they found rocks that were running up to 0.9 ounces per ton gold in quartz sand. So, well, one, like, there's the placer, there's the chunky nuggets, there's the quartz van. Okay, well, it's not coming very far. So they did some geochemistry. We didn't do that program, but they eventually people fell into the same technique that I've started, deeper soils and same assay company. And so everybody caught on to that because I never hit it, promoted how to do this. So now I could see the data when I played with it. They poked a couple of holes, but from what I could see, they could have been parallel in the mineralization. And that's the problem that our industry gets into. They jump to drilling right away because the market says, okay, I want, here's 2 million bucks, go drill it right away. Even though you're not prepared to drill it, what we prove, and that's what I actually show on the stakeholder presentation on their website, that you could actually see how easy it would have been to miss the Kamenak deposit if you actually didn't understand the moves you're making. You didn't set up the balls right away before trying to drop the black ball in. So this is what happened with the stakeholder property. They kind of drilled it premature, got disappointed, and then the market crashed and everybody walked away. So I think now with our new techniques and with ground truth going in, we'll be able to walk in, map that system out, basically do our magic and send in the hammer drill in there with the XRF, zap it, pin it down to the plus or minus 5 meters to 10 meters zone, and then bring in the rab and basically kiss it really good. And it's like bang, bang, bang. Statistically, there's something there. We know there's something there. How big it is is another story, but we know we should be able to kiss that target and hit that target that they missed in the last big push there. So, What was your motivation to join Stakeholders Advisory Board? The real motivation is this, to get the market cranked again, like to get everybody pumped. How it worked before, like because 
all this market took off when the market was crashing was we had the white gold deposit discovery. We had the coffee discovery. And then attack had their discovery in the eastern Yukon. You needed three of them. Bang, bang, bang. One gets people's heads turned. Two, they start to stand up and take notice. Three, they're going, crap, what the hell's going on up there? Let's start moving. So with Bellarat, because I don't own the ground, like I'm not even, it's not even my ground. And historically, I wouldn't even look at it because it wasn't my ground. But what I realized is, okay, I need one of these hits. So I said, you know what? I see the data. I know what we could do with it. And that represents a hit to me. So I think we could go in and kiss that and basically find something. And hopefully it's 20 meters of two or three grams plus. All of a sudden, that will get the market going. But I'll have to do this on two or three other projects too. So that was part of my, like really my going, okay, I'll help you guys out here because you'll be one of my, it's kind of like fireworks. One is good, but two is better. Three gets better. <laughs> we got to help each other now in the whole district in the market because that's what ramped up the last big play. We have a lot of, I call it the balls are three quarters of the way up the hill. So that's like this. Like there's probably a couple million dollars into that ground. And for 250, 300,000 bucks, I'm going to go and actually solve the mystery. At least get a good idea. Is it there or is it not? And so it doesn't take too much. Like I want to do this on about three other projects on some of my ground and potentially some other customers ground. But the idea with the ground truth and then hence we get one hit. Well, it's high tide comes in, all boats rise. And so that's the idea now. Let's kind of help each other out and hopefully get this whole district. So with the coffee kind of heading in towards production, like they're talking 2019. So they're talking about pushing the road right through the stakeholders ground. <laughs> it's not right through it that's right next to it. So all of a sudden we have the infrastructure heading our way in. Now is the time to get all this geared up. So we have the drones to drills technology with Ground Truth pretty well debugged now. She's up and running commercially. We're confident with the whole system. So that's why I said, okay, well, let's let's basically go and help these guys out because I've got a curiosity because <laughs> I've never been able to go down the hill and look at it. So I'm going, crap, okay, well, if it doesn't matter if it's mine, Ground, at least it's a good hit if they hit and then so help the whole district as a whole there. So. And you're a shareholder of both companies, Kamenak and Stakeholder, correct? Yeah, I bought into Stakeholder, yeah. And in Kamenak, well, it was my ground, so I picked up a pile of paper there, So and then I still own the royalty on that ground. Like now the real true goal of my exploration is like I own the royalty on the white, and I own it on the coffee, and we own it on the QV. The QV, we made another discovery. Like that was 2012. That was on another ground. That was uh, Comstock Minerals there. And so we made a nice discovery there. And again, it was same kind of general techniques there, soil sampling and going in. And so they're out there. So that's kind of the cool part about this 100-year-old mystery of the Klondike gold fields and the placer being produced in the Yukon. There's deposits sitting above on the t- in the headwaters. So not done yet. Well, Sean, it was a real pleasure speaking with you today. Thanks so much for joining me on the program, and good luck with all of your endeavors in the Yukon. Yeah, okay, thanks. I've been chatting with renowned Yukon Gold prospector Sean Ryan on behalf of our sponsor, Stakeholder Gold, trading on the TSX Venture as SRC and in the U.S. as SKHRF. Listen to the segment again on our website, ellismartreport.com, and listen to the entire Ellis Martin Report on iTunes and TuneIn Radio. Did you hear something worth repeating? Find all segments of this program on our website, ellismartinreport.com. I'm Ellis Martin. Join me now for a conversation with the president of Gold Source Mine, Giannis Sitos. Gold Source trades on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol GXS. 
www.gold-mining.v. Gold Source is a Canadian junior mining company about to produce gold in English-speaking Guyana, bordering the Caribbean in South America. Now, you have an update as far as what's going on in Guyana. Is it true that you're pouring gold? We concluded construction of the mine at the end of January, and we announced that we have now entered into the phase of commissioning in February, and about 48 hours ago, we did the first gold pour. Obviously, we haven't reached commercial production yet. We expect this to be reached in the second quarter of this year, but everything's looking good. No major upsets on any part of the engineering circuit. Full force is working the full shift there. It's about 10 hours shift a day and uh, we're looking good. How much gold do you expect to pour this year? I mean it's difficult to do the estimation yet because we have to do all the mass balances and so on in the coming couple of months complete the, the commissioning but I would say something between five and ten thousand ounces. And this happened very very quickly. Absolutely and the biggest thing that I would like to mention here Alice, is that we delivered this construction of the mine at about 18 percent savings to what we put up front it will cost us. This is a very rare case in the mining world that the company company commits some capital expenditure and delivers the project at 18% under budget to the market. So this is incredible. What do you expect the price of gold per ounce to be with regard to gold source? The cost, yeah, yeah. Because as I said, the only thing I don't control is the price of gold. All the other parameters are under my control. So therefore, the operating costs are very good. We already experiencing that through because we have the full force working there. We still believe we would deliver cash cost Guyana under $500, all in sustaining capital with Canadian overheads, everything between $600 and $700. Perhaps. Is that priced out during the next couple of years? Do you see production costs coming up at all, even as the price of gold increases? No, the opposite, actually. The more ounces you keep, as you ramp up the project, and, uh, you know, if you remember, this is a stage development approach. So we start with small production, but we will, every kind of year, we will almost go uh, 68% and more. As you increase your denominator of the amount of ounces, your capital expenditure at this stage is the same. Maybe we bring a little bit of more mining equipment, but it will all be great, and the average cost of per ounce will drop as we go. And what are you doing to expand the resource? It's all about expansion and free cash flow. This is a story that uh, you want to create this profit margin on per ounce basis to redeploy it in order to do expansions, both in the capacity side, in other words, put more throughput from 1,000 tons a day to 4,000 tons a day, and also improve recoveries from a pure gravity plant to introduction of a leach reactor and therefore 60% recovery is to 90s, a kind of 92% recovery. Now, this is a nice marriage, this company, between you and the board of directors who are also involved with your sister company, Silvercrest Metals. You had the property. They had the management team. Give us a little bit of backstory. If you try to do M&A, a successful M&A is one plus one makes better than the sum of the two, okay? So the Silvercrest Mines team is an exceptional team, but most importantly, Ellis, they have been used to develop projects through this approach. Eric Fear is the number one name out there our chief operating officer and the president of Silvercrest Metals now, so in what we call phase development approach for the project. So therefore, it was not only about the management, it was also about the plan to move Eagle Mountain from an exploration project into a fully blown mine producing operation, okay? So that's the big thing. So it took a lot of pain over the last two and a half years for lots of people, but in our case, the marriage worked very well and we complemented one team and the other team, and now we are up and running. And I want to give a lot of credits not only to the management because the most important 
people are really the operating people on the ground. And we do carry an incredible team in Guyana. I'm talking now about the people, the simple workers, the fabricators, the excavator operators, the people who work day to day. I'm spending significant time of my time as a president in Guyana. Almost every month I'm there. And I see what I'm saying here. It's not uh, a praise. So I want to congratulate all of these people and without the dedication of this team and also the support from the government of Guyana and a lot of other people on the local stakeholding environment, the local communities and so on, we wouldn't be in this position. Yanis Sitos, thank you so much for the update. It's a pleasure to have you on the program today. Thank you. Thank you very much for the invitation to talk again. I've been speaking with Yana Sitos, the president of Gold Source Mines, trading on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol GXS. Listen to this segment again on the homepage of our website, ellismartreport.com, or download the entire Ellis Martin Report on iTunes or TuneIn Radio. You've just heard opinion, commentary, and dissertation involving publicly traded companies seeking your potential investment. They paid us for the privilege. Find our sponsors and listen to segments of this program again on our website, ellismartinreport.com. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. 